we discovered that Christianity doesn't have a marketing problem. We have a sales force problem. Bill Cook and Jonathan Bach, Hollywood film producers, marketing mavens, and authors of the new book, The Way Back. Join us on this episode. Put your faith to work. This is the Bold Idea Podcast with ideas, interviews, and inspiration to bring your bold ideas to life. Here are your hosts, Larry Gates and Armin Asadi. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of the Bold Idea Podcast. I'm Larry Gates. And this is Armin Asadi. And we've got a terrific show lined up for you. We are going to really dive in and put your faith to work in this episode, aren't we, Armin? Absolutely. We've got two <laughs> dynamic guys that are dynamic com- communicators, and this is basically a dynamic duo that you're about to listen to, and they're going to make you uncomfortable, and it's going to be a good discomfort that you're going to feel. Yeah. Look, get ready for a little scare seat squirming as yeah. they may say we have on the program phil cook now you may recognize the name because he's been on our podcast before and so glad to have phil back and he's teamed up with jonathan bach they have written a book together that's coming out here on february the 6th the way back how christians now get this how christians blew our credibility and how we get it back now uh there's a bold idea in this book and uh you want to catch that whole interview but phil he is an internationally known filmmaker, writer, and media consultant. He's the CEO of Cook Pictures. He's uh, produced media program in nearly 50 countries around the world, and he is is a terrific, terrific guy, very lucid, and you'll see he's written before One Big Thing, Branding the Faith, Unique. He's a marketing guy, but boy, he really understands something about Christian culture and actually our own culture here too. And now he's teamed up with Jonathan Bach. Jonathan is the founder and president of Grace Hill Media. He has marketed more than 500 major motion pictures and television projects to Christian audiences worldwide. You might recognize some of these, The Blind Side, The Lord of the Rings, The Narnia series, uh, Lady Bird, uh, you know, some of those uh, lesser known titles, right? <laughs> so he is, according to Time Magazine, the man who helps Hollywood get religion. And uh, so on this program, we want to welcome back again, Phil Cook, and for the first time, Jonathan Bach. Hey, we're thrilled to be here. Thank you very much. You know, uh, you guys have written, I think, a book that's uh, that's going to, well, kind of punched my lights, and I'm sure it's going to do that for a lot of Christians. It certainly has... Uh, a very compelling title, How We Blew Our Credibility and How We Get It Back. It, and, and I just think that this is one of those books that uh, really is going to be very, very transformative. But before we get into that, I'm kind of curious, how did you guys meet? Oh, man, that's a great question. How did we meet? Uh, uh, talk about well, putting us want- on the spot. You want the G-rated version? <laughs> yeah, go ahead, John. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's actually not that interesting. We we got introduced to each other by a uh, director in town named Scott Derrickson, who's also uh, a Christian. And we started having these kind of fire pit nights together and just uh, chatting about life and the entertainment industry. And our friendship grew from there. That's Jonathan's virgin version. <laughs> Phil, what about you? Keeping it PG, right? No, that works right? for me. I mean, and, and Scott Derrickson just directed Doctor Strange for Marvel, and uh, he's working on a new t- TV series based on the movie Snowpiercer. So, it, it, I mean, he's a high-level intellectual, so that just shows you the kind of guys we hang out with. We're not, we're not fluff here, Larry. We're not fluff. <laughs> yeah, like the rest of us, right? So I, I'll tell you what. You know, in your book, you guys uh, hit on a pretty compelling theme, but I'm kind of curious, what was the origin of this idea? How, how did you guys decide this was the time and you two were the ones that needed to put this together? Well, I mean, it, it's the aforementioned fire pits um, that we we had with uh, Christian friends who are in the entertainment industry. We uh, Oftentimes, the conversation will turn to... Um, why? Why does? Uh, why do Christians do these things? Um, you know, wh- why? Why do we keep painting ourselves into corners on different issues? And uh, that's really the impetus of the book is that we decided that uh, Christians had a PR problem, and um, as marketing and media guys, we're the ones to write something about it. 
and we thought, of course, that you know the, the the decline of Christianity in the culture, the reason we're being marginalized, that we're being criticized, uh, that we're losing influence out there, is you know just a marketing issue. Uh, we we see everything through that lens because that's what we do for a living. You know, you have a your house is too small, great, call it cozy. Um, we, there's a marketing solution for everything, but the more we started studying the decline of Christianity and the culture and how we're making less and less of an impact, the more we realized it's not really a marketing problem. There's something much deeper. That started a real serious investigation about, I don't know, a year and a half ago where we started looking at real studies and data and polling and trying to find out what is this disconnect between what we feel like we're doing and how the world sees what we're doing. That perception is kind of where we started. Yeah, so the book is The Way Back, How Christians Blew Our Credibility and How We Get It Back. So how did Christians, how did we blow our credibility? Talk about that. Well, let's just start here, okay? Which is, as, as Christians, what are we supposed to be known by? Uh, I think a very easy example would be the fruits of the Spirit, right? That, that's essentially what the world is supposed to know us by. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, you know the, mm-hmm. y- you know the list, Okay. So let me ask you a question, Larry. Which one of those words would you say that the non-Christian world would use to describe the Christian community? <laughs> well, this is a set, this one? is a setup because yeah, I'm drawing a blank here. I mean, I think yeah, they're well, most likely to say terrible. what hypocrite. Um, you know, they're most likely to say um, you know disconnected, di- disjointed, hypocrites, judgmental, condemning. Yeah. All convoluted, complex. None of, none of those are the fruits of the spirit, no. right? So there's no. a disconnect between how we see ourselves, because we see us as loving and joyful, and you know, most of the Christians I know are are you know kind, good, wonderful people, right? Um, but there's a disconnect between how we see ourselves and how the world sees us. Mm. That's a problem. That's a huge problem. And and really, it's contributed to the shift out there that's happened. And here's the thing. I understand why that upsets us, why the fact that, you know, the mayor of Houston demanded all the pastors submit sermons on gay and lesbian issues for her personal review, why the chaplain service is told it better go easy on mentioning Jesus at funerals, or why principals start reprimanding and threatening expulsion to kids who mention Jesus in a graduation address. Obviously, that makes us uncomfortable, but makes us frustrated. But we've discovered that anger strategies really don't work. You know, we tried, we thought, let's do politics. Let's try to elect more Christians in office. That'll change things. But really, it hasn't at all. Uh, Then we tried, let's boycott stuff. If you don't believe in what we believe, if you say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, by golly, we're not buying your coffee or we're going to boycott Hollywood or the gay community or whatever. Well, you know what? That doesn't work either. I mean, if boycotts worked, why, does, why don't missionaries do it? Let's go to a third world country and surround a tribe and hold up signs and criticize them. Boy, that'll win up to Jesus. Uh, it doesn't work for missionaries, so it's not going to work in other places. And what we've discovered is over the last 30 or 40 years, most of the strategies, which we call really anger strategies, have not worked. So maybe it's time to try something else to bridge that gap between how the world sees us and how we really live our lives. Do you guys think that the current political climate is creating an even greater uh, gulf between th- that you're talking about, this credibility gulf? For sure. I mean, the, ch- the church right now has essentially become synonymous with a political party. And if you just think of that in terms of if, if one of our primary um, jobs as Christians is to share the good news, we are setting ourselves up for half the world, half the country immediately hating us and immediately disagreeing with our point of view because we've aligned ourselves with the political party. That's what happens, right? I mean, think about any, almost any president who starts, starts with half the country not liking him. That's a tough place to start. Yeah. And, and, the tr- and the gospel should transcend politics. Remember, give to Caesar what is Caesar, but give to God what is God. So he's exactly right. The minute we start and, – and, and we're all for voting. We're all for being a part of a political party. We're all for getting involved in government, running for office if you want. But the minute we start dragging the church into it, then we start alienating, as John said, half the people out there. And how does that help us spread the gospel across the country? It just doesn't. So I'm just curious, obviously this problem didn't start in this millennium or even the last one. Where did the issue really begin and when did it start to get out of hand? Well, 
<laughs> That's a good question. It's funny that when we started looking at this, and, and obviously many of the listeners to this podcast will say, well, I'm not one of those guys. I'm somebody that's serious about my faith. I'm somebody that tries to share the gospel in a, in a winsome way. And um, But the truth is, if we're not all doing it in unison, if we're not working together as the church with a capital C, the, we all get tarred with the same brush. I mean, remember a few years ago when baseball got tarred with a, a few guys doing steroids. Well, that, that kind of made the whole sport look bad. And so when we started looking at when did the church do it right as a whole? And we had to go back 2,000 years, all the way back to the, the early church, the first few generations of Christians, to find a time when, as a unified whole, the church was doing remarkable things. So it's been a long time since we've done it well. Look, and it's not to say that the church isn't doing remarkable things now, but um, when we started to look at this and go, okay, uh, and remember, this is where we started. We started with the church has a PR problem, right? We have a marketing problem. Um, so we started to just look at why that is. Because if you look at America as a whole, it, there's, there's, it shouldn't be that way. Because essentially, look, you have a country, we are a very, very uh, religious country, in particularly compared to the world. Um, we're, we're a country where 89, depending on who's doing the studying, 89 to 90% of people say they believe in God. Um, you, you've got... Again, depending on the study, 70 to 80 percent saying I'm a Christian. They're identifying with uh, a Christian. So we kind of looked at that and said, OK, well, what defines a genuine follower of Christ? You can say um, you're a Christian, but does that make you a genuine follower of Christ? I mean, look, it's, it's a little bit like this. Like, are you in shape just because you have a gym membership? You're not. Right. So um, we started to look at. Um, the markers of what we think makes a Christian, and it's statistics in four key areas, prayer, church attendance, Bible reading, and tithing. And this is simple stuff, right? I mean, this is like, where are you spending your time and money and, and effort? This is not, did you go on a mission trip or, yeah. you, you know, do you regularly fast? Yeah, this is not Navy of, SEAL stuff. This is like the yeah, fundamentals. <laughs> common, exactly. Common baseline practices that would identify you as being Christian. What were those four uh, again? Can you list those four again? Sure. Prayer, mm -hmm. church attendance, Bible reading, and tithing. Okay. And we studied, uh, you know, research from the top guys, Pew and Gallup and Barna and all those kind of folks. And this Likewise. is, yeah. And here's basically what we, we found. So let's start with prayer. So in this country, 63% of Christians say prayer is essential. That's from Pew, right? And that sounds pretty good until you realize the corollary of that. That means that 37% of Christians don't think prayer is essential. Like, more than a third. More than a third of the Christians in America don't think prayer is important. Right. So that's, for us, the yellow flashing light on the dashboard. Uh, and that's kind of where we started. The check engine yeah. light just went on. Yep. There you go, yeah. right? So then we started to look into church attendance. Um, which is a tricky business to nail down, okay? But we all know um, from business, everybody out there listening knows it's like what a regular is, right? It's somebody who shows up to a place of business all the time, okay? So in the church world, there's a rule of thumb now for what a regular attender is, and that is three out of every eight Sundays or 19 Sundays a year makes you a regular in church. Okay, and the Hartford Institute of Religion found that only 20% of American Christians are in church weekly. So that means 80% of people calling themselves a Christian are not. Pretty rough. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. Now, it, it only gets worse from here, boys, uh, I'm afraid. So when we went to Bible reading, um, this one actually is a statistic from Lifeway, and what they found is that 40% of church-going Christians read the Bible once a month, rarely or never. 40% of churchgoers mm. not opening the Bible at all is what that basically means, okay? And then tithing is just as, as brutal as you could possibly imagine. <laughs> Fewer than 10% of churchgoers give 10%. So Rough. So part of your thesis is we've got a fundamental issue as believers, you know, holding our own credibility. All talk, no action. Yeah. 
all talk, no action. Big hat, no cattle. Yeah, exactly. And we, and the funny thing is we have the nerve to criticize other people pursuing the lifestyle they want to pursue when we're not pursuing the lifestyle we should be pursuing. So uh, that's where the credibility gap happens. You know, it's the the fat guy at the gym that's lecturing everybody else about health. Uh, I love that. I read that in your book and I just cracked up. When we're not living the life, how in the world do we expect other people to want to be like us or want to live the life we're living? It's just not going to happen. And, and here, here's where we, what happens, right? That disconnect that we talked about earlier of being known for the fruits of the spirit, but then that other list of, you know, hypocrite and judgmental and all those things. What we discover is that when we look at our own behavior as a community, all the things that non-Christians say about us are true, okay? We have, we are hypocrites. We are huge hypocrites in this. And this is where we start to totally lose our cultural credibility. I feel like you're going to get stoned walking down the street. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's the deal. The the big glaring thing that we, the thesis we came up with is that, you know, in 2018, what's the biggest threat to Christianity in America? Is it the rise of secular Islam, the rise of secularism? Is it Planned Parenthood? Is it the gay community? Is it the ACLU? We just discovered that the greatest threat in 2018 to American Christianity is American Christians mm. because we're not living the life, we're not being credible, we don't have integrity, and when that happens, there's just absolutely no incentive for anybody to want to be like us. And we talk about salvation, all these things, but you know what? Until they change their attitude toward us, until they change their perception, you can forget salvation. They're not even going to consider accepting Christ because they're not even the, the, the perception of us is so bad, and so that's why this is absolutely incredibly important. And here's what we came to, guys is that we discovered that Christianity doesn't have a marketing problem. We have a Salesforce problem. We simply have a staff that does not believe in our product. Mm -hmm. Okay. So imagine if you went to a a meeting at Pepsi, okay, at their headquarters, and you went in and most of the staffers around the table were drinking Coke. What would you think of Pepsi? It's pretty crappy. Product. Not much. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Pretty bad. I always ask a server at a restaurant if they eat there. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, so it occurs to me as I'm listening to you, and Phil, you were mentioning earlier that you started from, you know, because you're a marketing guy, I'm a marketing guy, and, and you know, you started these things from uh, a marketing lens, and you think, well, you know, there ought to be a way to address this credibility thing. But as I'm listening to you guys talk, and and especially the statistics you're sharing about really what ought to be normative Christian behavior is far from that. And, yeah. and, and so what I'm wondering about is maybe the problem was that we were doing marketing. We were actually putting things out there when our, when the underlying foundation to support what our message wasn't there. I like that. Well, it's good. I, 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 I'm not against marketing by any means. I mean, both of us make our living doing it. So marketing is simply, you know, telling your story or sharing your product with yeah. the most people possible. So there's nothing wrong with marketing. When the, the problem with marketing happens when the product doesn't work. Right. Um, you know, the more you promote something that doesn't work, the worse it becomes. So you're exactly right from that perspective. If we're not living the life, I don't care how much we're on TV or in the movies or whatever we say. Um, you're exactly right. If uh, when people finally explore it and see that we're total hypocrites, well, I think it actually makes it worse. Yeah, I was just wondering about the timing of all this because you know, as the stories you were unfolding in your book, you know, that were supporting your thesis here about this transformation that really in our generation, Phil, John, and well, I can't really speak much for Armin because he's still in the millennial set, but we have seen this transformation happen. We have seen where there's been an increasing disrespect for those in the uh, community of faith that we've witnessed that with our own eyes. And I'm wondering if maybe some of that was because we became so vocal about it when fundamentally that problem may have been there just festering all along. You know, I'm thinking about the moral majority and other things that rose up in the eighties that, that, Absolutely no question. One of the interesting things is we have gotten, as a Christian community, we have gotten too comfortable with being in charge. You know, I I don't say for a minute that America was a Christian country, has ever been a Christian country, but for 200 years, Christianity was the dominant mode of of thinking. It was the dominant faith in America. Even people that didn't care for Christianity – 
believe that the principles were good. My dad was a pastor in Charlotte, North Carolina in the 50s and 60s, and John's dad was a choral and music director at a big church in Los Angeles. And back in those days, people respected our fathers. People that would never darken the door of the church respected our fathers. However, I read some data just a week ago that indicated now the respect and trust of pastors has fallen below used car salesmen. No disrespect to used car salesmen out there, but but we've just continued to drop in our lifetime. I mean, in, in my lifetime, prayer in schools, of course, that was just accepted, especially yeah. at exam time. You know, abortion, <laughs> that was wrong. Marriage was between a man and a woman. And in my lifetime alone, that has gone 180 degrees in the other direction. That shift has happened quickly. So I don't think we've adjusted to being the minority. That's why we've gotten angry. We've gotten upset. I think we have to start thinking again the way the early church did because they were the minority. They couldn't change, pass the laws. They had no voice. They couldn't protest or boycott. They'd be persecuted. Well, so they had to figure out how to impact the culture without the tools that we've been using for the last 30 or 40 years. But we have given ourselves the perception that this country is a Christian nation, okay? But when you look at that number, that 20% of Christians are in church on a weekly basis— um, that's not a Christian nation. I mean, look, 20% of this country jogs. Would anyone ever say, um, this is a jogging nation? You would not. So <laughs> we've approached everything with this mindset that, oh, well, you know, this, we all believe the exact same things. We all do these exact same things when in reality, that's just not the case anymore. And you mentioned in your book, too, even the definition of evangelical has changed and morphed here over the last 10 years or so. Uh, to to where it doesn't mean what it used to mean. Um, so how how do you... that's a dead word now? Yeah, I mean, in my my point of view, like mm. that word of having any sort of religious connotation to it, it it's gone. It's it, a political. Yeah, it's become politicized, hasn't it? And yes, and, and so you know, how does the faithful here? How, how, so let's talk about the transformation here because you've described the problem very eloquently. So we blew our credibility. So now the second half of your book, how do we get it back? Yeah. Well, I just want to add one other thing because I bet there's a lot of listeners out there who um, are faithful Christians. They are going to church on a weekly basis. They are tithing. They are reading their Bible. And to all of those people, I say, I mean, amen and good for you and keep it up and keep climbing. But you have to understand the how damaging the actions of complacent Christians are are to you and to your daily ministry and to you, your church. That you're just being tarred with a terrible brush of their complacency. It's it's a, the curse of the casual Christian. Well, and Jonathan, should I should, could I go so far as to say that I ought to break our heart to the point where we think seriously about discipling someone? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we ha- no we have to. We have to get back to really pushing uh, each other, uh, encouraging each other to grow get deeper. Uh, into our faith because uh, the like the casualness of this is is destroying the uh, the image of Christianity. Mm, good word. Yeah, I mean, really, sure. what what could be a bolder idea than just taking your faith seriously? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what if we actually lived it out? Yeah. I mean, holy smoke, well, that would that would change everything. What if we really put our faith to work? <laughs> Let's imagine that yeah. for a second. <laughs> now well, you know. You know look, this is a critically important transition here, though, because, you know, one of the things that Phil and I really talked about when we got through these statistics is we realized these are symptoms. OK, the bigger question is, what's the disease? Mm. And um, we, we needed to get to the why and why the, this is the current state of Christianity. Um, and so the, the answer to that really shocked us. And Phil, I'm going to let you tell them what we discovered. Well, we discovered that, you know, it, it, it's funny about idols, you know, in, in the, the Ten Commandments, probably the biggest one that is totally ignored is keep the Sabbath day, you know, keep it holy. Mm. Um, but the second most ignored one is graven images, idols, you know, and we don't consider ourselves idol makers. When my pastor goes on vacation, we don't build a golden calf in the lobby of the church. But we, we think in terms of idols is money, career, pursuits like that. But the truth is, we've created an idol in the shape of the God, what looks like the God of the Bible. But honestly, 
is much more understanding of my failings. We, you know, this God understands why I don't show up at church on a regular basis. He knows I'm busy. He, he understands why I'm not praying or reading the Bible. He knows I have a lot of other things to do. We live in a distracted culture. Um, he understands why I'm having an affair because he knows my wife has gotten older. She's not attractive. And it's really about my happiness and my fulfillment, right? So we started worshiping this other God. We almost called the book That Other God because we started worshiping this other God that looks like the God of the Bible, but is a lot more understanding, a lot more sympathetic to our needs. So we've created a God that's more based on our worldview of what we want God to be like instead of the God of the Bible that demands that we change our life to conform to him. So we discovered that's a much bigger issue than we ever thought. Yeah, I I would actually go as far as to say that um, we tend to dismiss all those Old Testament verses of uh, you know the the Israelites out in the desert. Uh, you know, silly Israelites. Uh, you know, building these calves and things like that. But I would argue that we are the most sophisticated idol makers in the history of humanity because we've made a god that looks like God, has the veneer of God for the presence of uh, other friends and family, but it's really an idol of our own making. Wow. No question about it. No question. I think you're right. So that's the that's the culprit. Wow. Yeah. And once you understand that, um, at least we can start to address the problem that's, uh, that's the elephant in the room. Once we recognize that um, a large majority of Christians have just created an idol uh, that's completely okay with them not being obedient to it at all, um, then, then we can at least start to get to, well, what do we do to fix this? How do we fix this? Mm-hmm. So how do we fix this? <laughs> well, you know, Armin's always we wanted to back. jump to the end here. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mentioned earlier that we went back to see when did the church do it right? When is a unified whole, the church really did it right? And we went all the way back to the first century. Those first few generations of Christians were really nobodies. I mean, they had no power, no money, no influence. They, they were persecuted. They were hunted down. They had to stay in hiding for much of the time. But how did this group of nobodies within a remarkably short time transform the entire Western world. I mean, this 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 Christianity thing, they called it the way back then, it became the dominant religious force in the Western world. And the more we studied, the more we, we discovered that the Romans did things that they abhorred, the Christians hated. But as I say, they couldn't do anything about it overtly. They couldn't protest. They couldn't complain. They couldn't pass laws. So they would start to do things that absolutely astonished astonish the Romans. For instance, the Romans had no regard for life whatsoever, none. Sounds like our culture today. Uh, and, and one expression of that is when a child was born they didn't want, they would have it die of exposure. They would take it to the city wall and put it out on the city wall or beyond the wall and literally let it just die of starvation, beaten by animals. It was so common that we have letters in existence from Roman soldiers in the field saying, back, writing back to their wife saying, you know, when the baby's born, if it's a girl, have it die of exposure. Just very common. Well, the Christians, they, they couldn't do anything overtly about it, so they would go out, these crazy Christians would go out under cover of night, take in these infants that had been abandoned on the city wall or beyond, take them into their family, raise them as their own. Other members of the church would, communi- would contribute money to help raise them. And this was so beyond anything the Romans could understand. I mean, they could not wrap their head around, why would anybody do this? And there were other things, the plague. When the plague would hit, Romans would run for the country. Christians would go to ground zero and minister to people at the heart of the plague at the cost of their own life. And historians today tell us that a major reason the Roman Empire started to shift was they did, these Christians did so many things that astonished and baffled the Romans it forced them to rethink who these people are and who is this God they serve. And that caused a huge shift in Roman thinking that eventually led to this explosion of faith in, in, in Christ. So a big part of the premise of the book is instead of complaining, instead of boycotting, instead of getting mired in politics, what are the things we could do today that would so astonish and baffle this culture? They would be forced to rethink who we are and who is this God we serve? We give some examples in the book, but we leave it wide open for people to come up with what are those things in your community, in your, your, on your street, in your city, in your town? What are the things you could do that would so baffle the culture? It would force them to rethink who we are. Can you give us one of those examples? Starts, uh, let's be clear. It starts, though, and this we learned from uh, the early Christians, with 100% commit, uh, commitment. Uh, there, was, there was points in early Christian history 
where the church fathers had to outlaw volunteering for martyrdom. Because, you know, normally what the Romans would intend to do when they were persecuting Christians is, well, let's let's chop off the head, right, and the body will die. Well, they would they would kill, you know, the head guy and other people would step forward into it. And the Romans could not understand it at all. And what that really signifies to us is that Christians were so committed, so committed that uh, they would do whatever it took. And then they would baffle them by how they were living their lives. This is the Bold Idea Podcast. Well, I mean, this is probably a good time to take a pause from this episode and thank our listeners who've supported the Bold Idea Podcast. You are the reason we exist. This is a nonprofit. That means we don't make profit off of doing this. This costs money. So if you're the people out there that are supporting us and donating to us, you're the reason that we've been able to do this for over a year. And we'd love to be able to do this for another year or two and bring on more amazing guests. So we would love your support. If you feel so led, just go to boldideapodcast.com forward slash donate. And thank you again. You guys travel all over the world. So where do you see this kind of baffling display of God's love through uh, believers today? Oh, we see it in a lot of places. I mean, like you say, uh, there's a group in Florida, South Florida, came out of a church. It's called Four Kids, and they started uh, a outreach to kids in foster care. You know, foster care is a huge problem in this country, and I live in L.A., and rarely does a month or two go by when the headlines in the L.A. Times are not about the corruption, the abuse, the harassment in the foster care system. But there are 400,000 foster care kids in the U.S. and 300,000 churches. If we got serious about this, we could eliminate foster care almost overnight. And what would the culture think if, because of Christians, the, the need for foster care was eliminated? And it starts simply, this group I mentioned in Florida, they, they developed an organization to deal with foster kids that's so powerful, so effective, so excellent, that when the sheriff's department picks up a kid out of an at-risk home, they don't take it to the Department of Child Services. They take it to this Christian ministry because they do such a, and with the blessing of Child and Protective Services, they take it there because they do such an amazing job at taking their care of these kids. So little, and, and we've got plenty of other examples in the book, but that's just one area where, think of the impact of that, eliminating foster care overnight, how would that would change the culture's view of what Christians are and, and what what they can accomplish? That would be amazing. So most most Christians, well, I shouldn't say Christians, people in general aren't ready to make radical moves. They, they usually need a baby step towards the radical move. So are there, is there anything practical? Or Absolutely. What, what would those be? Tell them about your idea for Craigslist. Well, John. I, 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 think, I think are you talking kind of more fundamentally in uh, how they are living out their faith? Or are you saying just in the practice of their faith? Just in general, in terms of how do we get our credibility back? How do we get the people who are quote unquote unbelievers looking at us differently and wanting what to can know we do what? individually? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, let me give you an, an example um, of, of. I think it starts here, which is we need to be radically humble. Um, that that is not a word that is um, connected with us very much at all, but we need to get back to a real place of humility. Uh, Phil knows a, a, a business leader that he knows who is a Christian, committed Christian. And just through prayer and his own sense of himself, he had a real sense that he was harboring very negative views of gay people in the gay community. And so to break himself of that, he went down to a gay bar in his community, uh, and without telling him who he was, he just asked if he could get a job there as a janitor. And so he started working there on weekends as a janitor at a gay bar, uh, cleaning up and serving. And after not a too long a time, a few months, uh, the, the patrons of the bar and the owners of the bar discovered that he was actually quite a successful businessman. And they, they wanted to know why he was doing this. And it really just came down to that he wanted to learn to love and serve 
people that uh, he was having issues with in his heart. And it not only changed him, but it changed them as well. Oh, wow. And, and note, it, it didn't, he didn't change his theology or his principles. It's not about compromising anything. It's simply about the desire to serve because that so impacts people in a powerful way. It was remarkable. So th- these are, I mean, again, I, I think this is another pretty radical example of what to do, but for the person that's probably looking for a, a stepping stone, what would that stepping stone be? <laughs> sure. You know what? I say this, be a better neighbor, be a better neighbor. I have a friend in the UK, Jay John, he's an evangelist. He says, you want to be a missionary? Awesome. Go next door. The, the statistics are staggering uh, the number of people in America that don't even know their next door neighbor's name. And, and for your listeners, think about it for a minute. How many people at your job don't even realize you're a Christian? How many people on your street don't know you're a Christian? Do you, do you even know their names? And so I think a great way to start, and we uh, cumulative, if there's 300,000 churches in America, there's millions of Christians, what if we all started a concerted campaign to make an impact on our street, just with our neighbors? Starting small like that ultimately builds and builds and builds, and the momentum makes a huge impact. So I would encourage people, start by just reaching out to your neighbor, becoming a better neighbor, get to know people. John's had a huge impact on his street with homeless people. Not that they all live on his street, but he started jogging in his neighborhood. He started jogging in his neighborhood and discovered there are homeless people within a mile or two of his house. Mm. And he started reaching out to them, and it made a huge difference. Yeah, you'd be amazed what a difference it makes um, with homeless people just in knowing their name. Um, I, I, I have a friend who has made it his mission. He's a Christian, and he's made it his mission to know the name of every single person that he runs into every single day. So every single morning, he goes to the same Starbucks. So he started to get to know the names of the regulars that he sees there, the people who work behind the counter. When he drops off his car in the car park, uh, he knows the name of the guy who takes his ticket. He knows the name of the guy, the security guys inside the building, the guy in the elevator. I mean, it goes on and on and on from there, all the secretaries that, uh, uh, and assistants that he happens to walk by not just knowing their name, it's actually knowing a bit about them. And those kind of interactions, that kind of joy, uh, that kind of commitment to knowing people and saying, you matter, you care, you care enough for me to get to know who you are, is a very easy way for you to start to transform people's opinions of Christians and Christianity. Well, you guys outlined at the end of your book, nine or 10 of these kind of practical strategies, being a better neighbor was one of them. And when I read that, of all of the ones you listed, that one was the one that kind of hit me in the gut. Mm. <laughs> I'm wondering, yeah. as you guys were putting together that list, were there any personally that kind of were convicting for you personally? Oh, the, the well, I don't know about convicting, but the one that I'm most, I, I think is potentially the most powerful is, uh, I, 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 for years I've been asking this question, why do, we, why do we cry at funerals? Why do Christians cry at funerals? You know, obviously if it's a child or if it's unexpected death, obviously there's going to be grieving and grief. I, I get that. But if it's Uncle Bob, who lived his whole life as a, a strong, believing Christian, had a full life, you know what? Uncle Bob didn't just die. Uncle Bob just stepped over into eternity. Mm-hmm. Why are we wearing black? Why are we weeping? Why are we grieving? Let me tell you, we need to throw a party. I mean, what if Christians became known as the one group in America that when one of their people pass on to the next life, we celebrate. I'm talking bringing a rock band. I'm talking making the, you know, knocking the roof off, really having a great time. A New Orleans if parade. Cele- <laughs> yeah, yeah, the whole thing. Because what impact would it make on people in the world that looked at us thinking those guys really believe what they yeah. You know, they, they really believe what they talk about, yeah. that Uncle Bob just stepped over in eternity. That's an amazing thing, and we should celebrate. So little things like that would have a profound effect, we believe, on the surrounding culture. It would certainly yeah. be and perplexing I, I, to those who don't experience that, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. I, I will tell you the one that was convicting for me, which is um, the the self-imposed racial segregation that happens in churches every single Sunday in America. Um, I go to a church, my kids are committed to it. It's, It's terrific, it's a big church, we have a great pastor. It is, by and large, a very, very white church. And um, it was, it actually, last Easter, we had an event uh, on Good Friday where every single person who was on stage was white. 
Um, and when you look at the demographic breakdown of our church, there's about 10% of our population that is non-white, but none of that is showing up on stage. And so it led me to really challenge and encourage uh, our pastor and our worship leader to do something about that and to model on stage the church we hope to become. So we actually changed a lot of how uh, things happen at our church in terms of um, who's giving announcements, things like that. But now it's significantly more inclusive. Um, and we try to have, um, of the people who are speaking on stage, serving on stage, singing on stage, try to do it about a third of them uh, from other uh, minority groups. Now, Just now John, did try you try and transform that? Now, John, in your book, you, of course, you you proposed a fairly radical thing of of this fifty fifty principle of having fifty congregants go to another congregation in a swap, right? Um, Correct. Are you doing that yeah. in your church? We haven't gotten to that yet, but I think it's really an important next step. Which is, you know, it, it is it is awful. Okay, and and you know, I know lots of African American pastors. I know lots of white pastors, and it's something they all bemoan. They don't like it. They don't like that their entire church is all black or all white. They don't they don't want it that way. But how do you change that? What do you do about that? And so our, our suggestion was that you find two like minded churches and that they trade fifty uh, of their members of some of their best members and say you're going to go to this other church for six months with the hope that some of them stay, and then you do it again, and you keep doing it until there's more racial integration. Yeah. Uh, and, and you start to wonder, if, if we started to do something like that, what would that, without even being involved in politics at all, what would the understanding uh, level be if we just got to know each other uh, as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, mm. uh, and knew each other? and how that might change the uh, cultural disconnect, the racial disconnect that currently exists in our country. Yeah, I love that idea. It could be applied to age as well. There's a lot of churches that are, you know, you got a bunch of 60, 70 year olds there and other churches yeah. that are, you know, young, they could do the swap as well and probably learn a lot from it. Well, guys, yeah. we're, we're out of time, but I wanted to just give an opportunity for our listeners to find out where can they learn more about your book? It's available on Amazon. You can pre-order it right now, and um, it's it will be out shortly. But you can pre-order it on Amazon or from a local bookstore anywhere. It's available just about everywhere. The way back, how Christians blew their credibility and how we get it back. We'd love for people to check it out. And the other thing, too, is take it to your church. Start a small group around the book because these principles of how we could change our perception, we would love for people to come up with their own ideas and get into this and even get back in touch with us. And let's figure out how to make this work because it's got such great potential. Oh, Phil, you know, you guys have written a really solid book. I, as I was reading it, I kept thinking, oh, this that's a great quote, and I want to pull that out. And I was like, and there's so many good principles in here. And then I'd read something and go, oh, I, I got I to work on that for me. <laughs> you know, it's one of those books where you can go, yeah, this is a great book for somebody else to read until you get to that point where you go, wow, this is really something I got to pay attention to. So I want, I want to thank you both for not only being on this podcast, but obeying God and, and, and writing this book for our benefit. And I, I just really appreciate that. Well, you're Thank very you kind. So thank, you. thank you. Thank you. All right. Thanks again, guys. God bless you, gentlemen. Thank you. Okay, Armin. Gosh, so good to have Phil back on the program and to meet Jonathan, huh? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You can tell those. that's like the dynamic duo right there. <laughs> they just ride off each other. So break this down. Let's uh, let's talk about what we what our takeaways are here. I mean, I, I guess I'm not thinking in terms of uh, takeaways, but just how much I appreciate the content that put they're putting out there because it's so fundamentally important to what's happening um, within Christian circles. And I don't mean that in a superiority complex type of way, but the fact that uh, there's, there's so much going out right now, there's so much... Um, content being uh, blasted out into the American society, but none of it is really coming from the Christian community. We've lost every single platform, right? It's because we, we've almost created this culture where it says, okay, for you to be a Christian, 
You need to be in a Christian church, reading your Christian books, listening to your Christian music, hanging out with your Christian friends, having your Christian devotions. And if you step out of that, you might be stepping into a danger zone and you might become a watered down Christian. So even the Christians that do exist, they're so secluded and they're so isolated and segregated from the rest of the society is that we've lost our voice. You know, we're not, it's not just being a hypocrite or being whatever else, but, but we've isolated ourselves. We put ourselves on islands for the sake of protecting ourselves that we've literally become irrelevant. And all the people that are standing in these other gaps have taken over. They've taken over media. They've taken over mainstream. They've taken over Hollywood. They've taken over radio. They've taken over everything else. But it's because we've sheltered ourselves for the sake of protecting ourselves where the way that Phil and Jonathan are defining it. And that's the things that was like giving me goosebumps is the way they defined the Christian that made and created movements that made people people ask, what is it about you that shifted culture forever? I mean, the Roman Empire was shifted by these people who are willing to go out into the plague infested areas while everyone else is running away, adopting babies that people are putting out to die. Like that, I, I mean, to me, that that's so crucial. That inspires me so much than hearing about how much more I need to read my Bible, but to hear how radical I need to be in a sense that says, hey, that will actually be more missional than everything else. And I mean, to me, that's a dangerous Christian. And I mean that in a good way. Yeah. You yeah. Know? You know, as I, they were talking about the strategy of anger doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I couldn't help but think about what we're seeing here is almost this death spiral, mm-hmm. right? The, the hypocrisy as the world sees it, the disconnect and the credibility that we have because of all the statistics that Phil and Jonathan came up with here that, you know, says, you know, by and large, we have cultural Christians who are not really living out their faith. Sure. And that represents this disconnect. And so as that disconnect grows and as the voice against Christianity grows, the anger can arise. I mean, we try to push back against it, you know, well, that's we because to, we're on the defensive. We're right? on the defensive, but we're, yeah, but we're also, you know, feeling like we need to defend the institution of Christianity, right. As opposed to saying, wait a minute, wh- where am I, what am I doing right. that will, you know, as, uh, St. Francis of Assisi said, you know, uh, preach the gospel when necessary, use words. Right. And what am I doing to preach the gospel in that way that, doesn't require words. Now, I don't think that's the full story because, I mean, they need to know the full revelation of God too, but... And to, to that, sorry to cut you off, Al, I'll let you finish your thought, but the funny part is, is we have people who defend the faith. They're called apologists, yes. right? And, uh, and, and there's probably about 20 of them, and most of which you'll realize the only following they have are literally all Christians. <laughs> Yo, and, and other apologists. Yeah. <laughs> no, all we're doing is defending the faith with other Christians that want to know how to defend the faith, but nobody's actually going out defending the faith in any way, shape, or form with the people who are not Christians. Sorry, finish your thought. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, I, you would know more about that particular thing than I would there, but I, I the way I was seeing this or I was listening to it is that the more we get angry, the more we push back, the more it reinforces this view. Right. And so it's almost this death spiral. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about the, the analog here is, is almost like in a, in, in a combat situation. Mm-hmm. One of the elements of martial arts is that you work with the momentum of an attacker, not against the momentum of an attacker. Right. So mm-hmm. you, you help advance your cause by working with their momentum. And so in many ways, I think that's kind of what their book is about is saying, look, this is how the world is perceiving Christians. And instead of attacking it, why don't we take a look fundamentally deep inside and say, how can we live more radically? Yeah. How can we, instead of attacking against it, why don't we embrace it as if, hey, where, in, where is that perception true yeah. in my own life? Because I think all of us could probably find some degree of hypocrisy in our life. We could find some degree where our own demandingness and our own sense of mm. wanting to set a God before somebody else mm. and not serve and not, they, they write about 
the S seven mysteries that uh, they were talking about at the end of the interview is surrender, scripture, submission, service, sacrifice, simplicity, and suffering. Mm. Now, how how often do we like think about all right? My plan, my goal for this year is to Suffer. is to become more sacrificial. <laughs> Uh, we don't normally write right. that as a goal for the year, you know, or my my goal for this year is to learn how to go deeper in submission, yep. to do what that uh, man did, that that uh, a successful business executive who decided, you know what, I, I, I realize my thinking is, is uh, hostile toward the gay community, so I'm going to go into the gay bar and I'm going to work and serve them. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of like a transformational goal. That he, he, I don't know if he established it as a goal or he got the conviction that he needed to address it, but that's bold courage right there. And how often do we instead take all that energy and try to fight against it instead of saying, look, how can I take that energy that I, I, I do think that there's, uh, there's not accurate views. I mean, we certainly don't want the world's perception of us to be accurate, right? We don't want that to be true. In many cases it is, however, and we certainly don't want it to be true for us. So how can I work with that perception and use that to fuel me to be even more radical in how I express my faith? I, I just, I love the premise of the book and I love that question because it, it's a searing question. Right. No, I, I yeah, I, I love it. I, I think it's a, a incredible topic. I, I pray to God genuinely that this starts a movement. I, and uh, I, to be honest, I hope it doesn't start in church. I hope it starts in the homes of people where it starts with something as practical as they were saying, go find out what the, your neighbor's name is. It's uncomfortable. Like I know all my, well, I shouldn't say I know all my neighbors, but with the eight houses on my block, I know seven of the eight and it's uncomfortable because they immediately get in your business, especially when they were, we're the young, you yeah. know, we're like the babies in our neighborhood. It's a, like a retiree community. Well, we had and, no idea. And you know where we live. It's very easy not to engage with neighbors. Yeah, because you don't even have I, to look at us. I, I, I have to go. I have to actually physically go quite a distance yeah. to get to a neighbor. You know, so we're we're kind of segmented here. And I was like, I was reading that, and I thought, yeah, that's not an excuse. Yeah, you know, I, that's not really an excuse. Yeah. And as I was thinking about that, as I was actually looking over my pond, I could see my neighbor's house, and I thought, I've forgotten their names. Mm. And that actually bothered me. Yeah, I was yeah. like, how do I go back over and reintroduce myself again? Yeah. But maybe I just need to do that and just out of humi- humility say, you know, I, I really would like to get to know you, but I have to tell you, I forgot your name and yeah. I'm your neighbor. <laughs> and I'm only hoping that you forgot mine too. <laughs> so you don't have to feel bad. Yeah. But that's a sign of a good book when it makes you uncomfortable and challenges you to do something that's biblical. So I, I, I don't know. I, I can't, I just, I haven't even finished reading it. I've only read three chapters now and... I, I just hope that people really grab a hold of this book and let, just accept the uh, uncomfortable feelings that it might give you. But I, more so, I hope it, that people accept the actions that it leads them to. Yeah. You know, they write in their book, we have abandoned our faith. We're just the last to notice. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just so convicting that we should really be the first to notice when we've gone astray. Yeah, And I, I think that this is a great book for... For anybody, any believer, anybody who wants to put their faith to work, you really need to to go out and buy this book. And I say that not only because I I know Phil well enough to know he writes a good book, but because I've read it and it's and it's a good book and it's yeah. worth uh, worth your looking at and, and reading. Well, we hope you enjoyed this conversation and, and uh, would love to get your comments on whatever might have sparked your interest in what we've talked about. Go find our show notes at boldideapodcast.com slash five five, and there you'll be able to leave a comment for us. Uh, Leave a comment for Phil or John, and and we'll forward that on to them as well. And we'd love for you to uh, leave a review as well. Um, You can do that right on our show page, and uh, love for that to um, appear on iTunes so that uh, we can increase our listener audience. And we just love it when you share these episodes with your friends. So if you found some value in this would you let us know by reviewing the show and by forwarding this on to your friends well i mean anything else from today's episode that you would like to share no i just love it i i'm so glad they wrote it i am uncomfortable and i and i appreciate that <laughs> discomfort that i have right now and uh it's 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 a genuinely a discomfort that i i pray everyone feels because it, it it's essential and I, and I think it's the type of discomfort that can radically shift culture 
because it starts with me and not what somebody else or what organ some other organization can do, or what my church can do, what my pastor can do, mm-hmm. what the leaders or staff of a church can do, what this nonprofit can do. But it's it, it's what can on I me. Do? Yeah. What it's can on I? me. And it's not impossible task. Go knock on the door eight feet away from your door. Yeah, and that's a bold idea right there. Yeah. So for Larry Gates and Armin Asadi. Two uncomfortable guys sitting here. <laughs> Looking at what we're going to do in our next bold step, we pray that that's the same for you, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to the Bold Idea Podcast. To get our show notes sent to your inbox, visit boldideapodcast.com.